After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with him and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, that, the, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Jews, to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. The word of the Lord. This morning, if you take stock of where you're at, do you feel burnout? When I say burnout, I don't mean uh, the type of burnout that comes from you choosing to live life at such a chaotic pace and never deciding to slow down. You know, it's just the consequences of our own decisions. I mean a type of burnout that you're a burnout saint. You're burnt out in trying to be faithful to who Jesus has called you to be. You're burnt out in trying to trust him. You're burnt out in trying to follow him. And you're just a burnt out Christian. The other question I might ask you is if you are burnt out, what is it that you're looking for in it? What is it that you want out of it? In 2009, a uh, young man started his seminary career destined for greatness. He had incredible insight into the scriptures, tremendous wisdom. He had all of the answers, and he knew that certainly he would have the largest church in the history of Christianity. 
and that he, uh, no, I mean, what a gift he would be to the Christian world. And he would daydream about, you know, the size of the crowds at all of the conferences in which he was the keynote speaker as, you know, people were just blessed by his ministry of, of humble service. And certainly this uh, individual would never, ever be an assistant pastor. And then in 2011, two and a half years later, he would arrive here in this church. He'd be empty, exhausted, and utterly burnt out with zero desire to go into ministry. He was just looking for a place to rest his head. And if you haven't already guessed who I'm talking about, obviously I'm talking about Pastor Ryan. <laughs> By this point uh, in my life, I, I had been, I felt just chewed up and spit out. Everything, I mean, I went into to seminary with a level of grandiosity, a level of expectation that was just categorically chiseled away at over the course of these first couple of years. And two of the biggest reasons for, I think, um, for that where I had two, two of my most influential mentors um, where I had very painful experiences with them. One was a seminary professor of mine that uh, asked Melissa and I if we wanted to be a part of a core group to plant a church uh, with him. Sold us on a huge vision. Come, be a part of it. I'll give you all these opportunities. Mentor you, give you uh, opportunities to serve in the church and be a part of an internship program and then send you out and we'll plant churches. I thought, hey, this is my escalator to the top. Let's do it. So I jumped in. And within six months, the whole thing had fallen apart. It was the churches in tatters. Promises were made. Promises weren't kept. There was hurt, anger, and bitterness. And the pastor left shortly after because of an affair he'd been having for a long, long time. And after that, I thought, goodness, I just, it, it hit like it's on a bricks. And then after that, we went to the church of another mentor of mine who was a pastor in Dallas, who was another extremely influential person. And then shortly during our time there, he too left because he had an affair. And it was just devastating. And those, both of those things just were kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and just pulled the rug out from under me. So when we walked in here, I, Ryan and I knew each other. We weren't close. We were just acquaintances. But I knew of Trinity Harbor, which is our name at the time. And so Melissa and I thought, you know, you, when that happens, your criteria for finding a church is so simple. You know, it's like somebody invites you and you're like, are they a narcissist? And they say, no, not at all. Wow, that sounds like a healthy place. Let's check it out. <laughs> you know, like, are there crazy people there, you know? And so we, we came here and uh, we were just looking for a, a place to call home. And so for me personally, I was disenfranchised, and I really did not want to go into ministry. I was going to finish my seminary career, and then I was going to apply to go to film school, of all places. And a couple months in, I was asked to be the pastoral intern here. And to which I thought about it, and I thought, you know, why not? It's a sweet church. Maybe I can just serve out my time and then move on. And it was here in this church that Christ has done his most profound work in me. It was here in this church that Christ restored and gave me a, a new heart for ministry, which I needed because that guy needed to burn out. That guy would have just killed all of you spiritually. And he would have used you just like his mentors as a prop for his own ego. And I think that through this church, it has become a precious gift. And I love all of you, truly. Eight years in, this church is one of the great joys of my life. I say all of that 
Because sometimes burnout is the best thing for you. Sometimes burnout is a tremendous gift. It doesn't feel that way, but in it, you have the opportunity to find something precious. Are you burnt out this morning? Are you burnt out from trying to be the husband and the wife that Christ calls you to be to bring some healing and growth to your marriage? And you're exhausted because it just does not seem like your spouse wants to reciprocate. Are you burnt out from trying to raise your children in the faith and they just don't have any interest and show zero signs of repentance? Are you burnt out from praying about your chronic health issues and your faith is fragile because all you get is radio silence? Are you tired of struggling against addictions that you've been plagued with for years and it just does not seem like any rescue is coming? You burn out this morning. The truth is, if you try to be faithful to Jesus, you are going to burn out at some point. And if you've never been burnt out, it's because you probably haven't put that much energy into it. Jesus will bring you to the end of yourself. And that has to be said, because if you are burnt out, it's okay. It's okay to, that you are. Jesus is not mad at you. Jesus doesn't hate you. He's not punishing you. He loves you. And sometimes it's only whenever we, bring, we come to that place of burnout, our ears start listening differently. Our eyes start seeing differently. Our heart starts longing for different things. And it's an important thing to consider this idea of burnout because I think Paul's burnout in our passage today. I think he's exhausted. What's his status? Well, he left Corinth, or he left Athens and arrived in Corinth. Corinth is the second largest city Second most powerful and influential city in the Roman Empire at the time, only second to Rome. And Corinth is unique, though. One Roman philosopher said that only the toughest of people could possibly survive Corinth. Historically, it is a harsh, cold, dark, unforgiving city. And so tough, so that uh, uh, Luke would describe it in certain ways, but one New Testament uh, uh, commentator we talk about the licentiousness, the greed, the lust, the violence, and the power, so much so that he said that Paul had essentially arrived in Vegas on steroids. And he's exhausted when he gets there already. And spiritually, I think he gets to a place that he's burnt out. He goes into the synagogue preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, and what do we always know? When he goes into a synagogue, he's going to get resistance. And of course, he does again. He sees, experiences opposition. But Luke describes their resistance of the, the resistance of the Corinthians in a, in a special way, in a unique way. Because he does, he uses a verb that's a part of the hapax legomena, which is basically words that are only used one time in the entire New Testament. So the effect of that is that Luke is going out of his way to tell us that the Corinthians are all stars, superstars in their resistance and opposition to the gospel and in their hatred of Paul. And that's his... I, this has to kind of be the straw that broke the camel's back for Paul. Because what does he say? Verse 6. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. That's a different kind of Paul than we've heard. And it sounds like he's fed up. He's taking his ball. And he's going home. And he does. He leaves the synagogue and he goes next door to the house of a Gentile. Now... This passage, in some ways, makes you feel in between the blanks a little bit. I don't think Paul is necessarily leaving ministry altogether. I do think that, yes, he will stay and minister to these, these Gentile believers. 
But I think he's going, he's essentially backing out of any confrontation, any um, experience with the Jews, uh, and he's backing out of any sort of public ministry. Because every time he goes into public ministry, does he not experience incredible difficulty, resistance? And it would have had to have been exhausting. And I think that at this point, he's just going to keep a low profile. He is choosing the easiest way that he can. And I think we can give Paul a break. If we consider what he's been through, you know. I mean, he's on a second missionary journey, and what have we seen him go through? I mean, how many times does he go to the synagogue and get rejected? How many times has he put on trial, beaten, stoned, put in prison? And after all of that, he comes to one of the most historically harsh cities in Corinth. And he, they resist him to a degree that he hadn't been resisted yet. And they reject him with a hatred to where he's actually, you know, we find out later that he was scared for his life. He walked into a monster in Corinth. And it wore him out. And at times, or later in uh, the book of Corinthians, when he writes his letter to them, he, re- he writes about this time. And he says, he says, Remember how I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. All I preached to you was Christ crucified. That's all I had. That's all I could give you. I think he hit his, his, his breaking point, and he just no longer wanted to do a part of his ministry that he was called to do. Why? Because sometimes it gets hard. It gets really hard. So why does burnout happen in the first place? Well, I think really for two reasons, and they're simple reasons. Essentially, you know, the first is, uh, is results. We don't get the results and outcomes that match with our expectations. And so when that happens, we try harder. We give more to it to, give, to get what we want, to get the results, to get the outcomes, and to, to get what we want to happen, to happen. But then if it doesn't happen, we try new things and we invest more, and then it doesn't happen over time, and so then we get frustrated, and then we start thinking thoughts, which is the second thing of God, is, God seems distant. God isn't in this. God doesn't care. And in that... When God feels distant, we just feel alone, deeply lonely. I think Paul had to struggle with both of these realities in ministry. You know, it's easy to put Paul on a pedestal, which I think we often do, and just make him an emotionless robot that just did exactly what he was told. Of course not. Paul's a human being. How could Paul write about sanctification the way that he does if he is not being sanctified in these events that we've been walking with him through in the book of Acts? Why? Because Jesus loves Paul. And he wants more of Paul's heart. And he too is being sanctified. And I think that what he experienced in his ministry would have been very frustrating if we just consider what it would have been like to be for him. You know, we talked about his suffering, but what about the ways that he would have had to have wrestled with his faith? This up and down of when God decides to show up. So he sees a crippled man healed at Lystra, and then he's stoned. He's released from prison in Philippi by an angel, and then he goes to Thessalonica and he's on the run for his life. He casts a demon out of a young girl, and then he goes to Athens, and he's mocked. This constant up and down of when God decides to show up, I think would have been crazy-making. Sometimes we think, you know, if, it will, if I experienced miracles, it would be easy. You know, like the apostles and Paul, faith would be easy. It'd be easy to believe. I'd have to say, really, let's think that through. I don't actually think it would be. I think in some ways it would be much harder to know that God, to, to see God's raw power in a way that would bring healing to a crippled man. And then in the next situation, radio silence. 
you go to India. You think it wouldn't be hard if you went and you prayed for someone and you saw them healed miraculously. You're on a high. You come back and then shortly after, you lose your health. And no matter how much you pray, he, he gets Jesus' healing power and you never do. I think to see that would be very difficult. A profound struggle to know and to wrestle with our hearts, our motives, and what we want. Because whenever God moves and acts, it's always going to challenge what our motives are. It always challenges the results that we want and expect. It always challenges our ability to trust in him. I mean, imagine that difficulty of thinking, God, I've seen you move miraculously. I've seen your power, and I know you could make this so much easier for me. Where's my miracle? Where's your intervention in my life? Those are miserable questions to ask. Those are questions you ask that will bring you to a place of burnout. And when we do, goodness, who does not want to hit the easy button and walk away? Because it it's hard and exhausting to continue to care when you feel like you're the only one that does. And God feels distant in these moments, does he not? But I think that burnout is actually about experiencing that the complete opposite is true. It's an issue of what you want to look at. Because that's exactly what Jesus invites Paul to understand and to know. Into the deep end of the faith. How does he do it? He comes to Paul in verse 9 in a vision. And we know Paul's in a bad spot when it takes Jesus showing up in a vision to speak to him. All right? So he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, notice Jesus doesn't come to Paul and say, Paul, 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 you foolish little man. Nor does he say that he's surprised, wasn't expecting this. Paul, I thought you were different. Easy, buddy. I've got a lot riding on you here, okay? He's not surprised. Why? Well, Jesus moves towards him with encouragement and grace and compassion and kindness because it was, Paul was brought to the end of himself by Jesus, not the Corinthians. Paul's burnout was Jesus' idea. Your burnout is Jesus' idea. When he comes to Paul, does he give Paul any sort of notion that he is not in control of this whole thing? No. Paul, I've been with you this whole time. I am with you, directing you. You're here and you're burnt out because it was my idea. And he brings Paul to this place where he has an opportunity to experience something far more satisfying than any results or outcomes that he desires and wishes for. And that is one of the hardest things in our faith is to trust that we are given and have received exactly what we need. Instead of believing that, oh, I need, I need this, I have to have that. And instead to trust that Jesus has us right where he wants us. And it's in this place that Jesus brings Paul so that he can learn to trust in his presence in a new way. Because all he really does is tell Paul, Paul, keep going. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And what would that make Paul do? He'd have to now wrestle, I think, with an inherent question in Jesus' words that kind of lie beneath the surface, which is, Paul, I'm with you. But do you want to find me? What are you looking for? And I think that being burnt out is 
we have to recognize is the complete opposite of what we often think. We think burnout is because Jesus is absent. We experience it because he's actually at work within us. He's bringing us to the end of ourselves. Why? Because really it's only then that we begin to actually look and seek and desire him and him alone. And if you are burnt out this morning, Jesus wants you to trust that he's with you. Are these words only true for Paul? I think sometimes we act that way as though Jesus is like, well, that was for Paul, but you, I'm not with you and you should totally be afraid. But no, these words are for you. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. But do you want to find me? And I think that there's a faith, we have to recognize that there's a faith that's available to us in these moments. That even though tremendous wind and waves crash down, you're walking on water. But that kind of faith is a result of where you've placed your gaze and what you're looking at and what you're looking for. So how do you find the God that's with you, that says he's with you. Well, how does Paul find Jesus in this difficult place in his burnout? It says that he stayed in Corinth a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And then in verses 12 through 17, uh, you have this uh, situation that we've seen before where Jews bring charges against Paul. And so, in effect, we know that Paul went back to preach to the Jews because they're bringing charges against him. All right, so he kind of continued to bother him. And I don't think they would have brought him charges unless if he decided to leave them alone and keep a low profile. So kind of in light of that, we can say, Paul was obedient and move on. You know, let's pray. So in your burnout, we'll just be obedient. Okay, I don't think that's, it's that simple. And I think there's far more to Paul's response than that. If we look at, well, particularly, um, I think it's easy to, like, to look at that and not try and understand the difficulty of what's happening and to really try and get a sense of what that type of faithfulness is that would make you walk in back into the belly of the beast. Because remember, Paul is, said, I was in fear and trembling, and I was afraid for my life, and I was weak. He's at his low point here, and he decides to go back. It has to be more than just be obedient. How does he go about it? What was the manner in which he went about his business? How is this time different than the first time you ministered to the Jews? What happened? How did he go about it? Well, if we look at verse 18, there's an odd detail that seems, uh, that you may have noticed that seems oddly out of place, but it gives us a clue. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kentreai, he had cut his hair because he was under a vow. And then off to Ephesus and so on and so forth. And so you have this story that Luke is telling us. Yeah, Paul left, went to Syria, arrived at Contrei. Paul got a haircut and then went to Ephesus. Well, there's something to that. What's going on here and how does this connect with how Paul finds Jesus in his burnout? I think that the, this reference to, to his hair and this vow is a, a reference to what's known as the Nazarite vow. In number six, if you go back to the Old Testament... The Nazarite vow uh, is a, a particular vow that one could make to the Lord. And in number six, God, the Lord, Yahweh, uh, outlines the particularities of what this vow looks like and its purpose. So uh, someone who took the Nazarite vow could not drink any strong alcohol or any, or any alcohol or any strong drink. They had to be sober-minded. They had to be present. They couldn't be near a dead body under any circumstance, even their own family members. Nothing could drive them away or knock them off course from their devotion. 
and they couldn't cut their hair for the length of the vow because they had to worry less about their own welfare. And each of these stipulations has a, a reason for it. But that was a, a, a picture of the Nazarite, or the three main ways that someone took the Nazarite vow. And it could be taken for a season of life and ended, or it could be taken for the entirety of one's life. So think of Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. So the purpose of the Nazarite vow is what? The purpose was for an individual to express their desire to fully consecrate and fully devote themselves and be utterly dependent upon the Lord. And the way that that vow would end was when you cut your hair. So when Paul leaves Corinth and he arrives at Kentrea, his first definition or destination, he cuts his hair and he ends the vow, which is this. It's telling us, I think, that in the midst of Paul's burnout, in the midst of his frustration and fear and trembling and exhaustion, Jesus comes to him, tells him to keep going, and he says, I am with you. What does Paul do? Paul takes the vow and he doubles down. And he does not get knocked off course. So much so to the degree that he comes to this place where he, to get to go back, he says, the only way I can possibly get through this is to devote and consecrate myself fully and 100% to you. I have to be utterly dependent upon you. I have to trust that you are with me. This is the only way I'm going to get through it. I trust that you are with me. And he doubles down. I think that's exactly what Jesus wanted to hear. Because he desires a people that would cling to him far more than any results or outcomes that they're looking for. A people that trust that actually finding him is better and more precious than anything else you might want. Including your safety, your dignity, and your sense of value, and your own sense of energy, your own sense of burnout. But Christ above all else, there is nothing that compares to him. If you find yourself burnt out this morning, might you consider doubling down? Consecrate yourself all the more to Jesus. Maybe you don't know exactly what that is, and maybe you want to get together and we can talk about that. But don't say, don't protect what precious little you have left. Take all of it and offer it back to him. Why? Because when you actually are willing to double down in the midst of that burnout, that's when you're ready to actually find Jesus, that God that is with you. Why? Because your prayers change. Probably most of the time, 99% of the time, whatever our prayers, Jesus, please fix this situation. Uh, definitely fix my kids, my spouse, you know, make this outcome happen. Uh, make this situation work out the way that I want. And we're constantly, our whole movement towards Jesus is built on results and outcomes that we want to see happen. But when you get to a place in which you're just empty and burnt out, and you say, no, I'm going to double down in the same manner that we see from Paul and consecrate myself and offer what little I have left, that's a completely different situation. Because then your prayers become, Jesus, be near to me. Please help me. Please give me hope. Please give me joy. Please give me peace. Please give me wisdom. Please guide me, direct me. Please give me strength because I am all out of resources and I'm all out of answers. All I have is you. I double down and I consecrate myself to you. I'm utterly dependent upon you. Those are a different set of prayers. 
Those are a different set of prayers that honestly we only really pray whenever we're brought to the end of ourself. These are prayers that uh, you're searching with the eyes of faith. Not for results, but you're searching for a savior. These are prayers that Jesus loves to delight in and answer. And I don't know what it looks like if Jesus shows up for you. For each of us, it's different because we each need different things. But it's in the place of burnout when we offer those prayers of utter dependence. We stop looking for results and we start looking for he who is life itself. And that is the great question of your existence. Is Christ your only hope in life and in death? And sometimes it should, we should recognize that it's a gift that Jesus brings us to a place of burnout that make us have to actually answer that question and to seek him who is our only hope in life and in death. And those are different kinds of prayers. When you double down and consecrate yourself, those are prayers that will make you walk on water even when it doesn't feel like it. Are you burnt out? Double down, consecrate yourself, and find the God that is with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess our weakness. We often just want you to kind of fill up the 10% that we think we're lacking, and we'll take care of the rest. Or we think that if we just asked you to fix the situation, then life would somehow be different. We are consumed with externals, with circumstances, with others, with results, and we so rarely are consumed with the reality that's in our own heart. We are utterly bankrupt before you. And we desperately need your grace, even for all those people that are, don't feel burnt out, that are here this morning. Might you draw them near to you in your grace and in your compassion. For those who are burnt out, would you draw them near to you? Might your spirit speak that sweet promise in their ear, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. And might we have the faith to move towards you with what little we have left, knowing that in the end, finding you is more precious than anything that we could possibly imagine. We struggle to believe it. Help us do so and help us move towards you. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen.